All right, friends, welcome back to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Michael Martin here with my co-host, Mike Sauter. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. Happy, uh, you know, you and I both hate these movable feasts. Happy Epiphany, my brother. Happy Epiphany, yeah. In fact, I'm still recovering from our 12th night party last night. Congratulations. Yeah, I we talked to our friends. house full of people. Tell me. Tell me more about it. Uh, actually, one of our former guests was, was here. Jonathan Geltner was here with his awesome. wife and children. Yeah. And uh, we had... 20 some maybe 25 people here at the house a lot of little kids which was great and, michael martin uh, and we, his family single-handedly restoring the festival year we wassailed the, the apple trees we sang we said actually I, I i recently wrote about this in my blog that i i wrote uh an arrangement of scarborough fair which i made everybody sing with me yesterday and it was good and actually we, we also did a song that i actually our theme song on the oh really the podcast version not the youtube version uh which is a song i wrote for for william shakespeare's play 12th night to his oh, lyrics right, right 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 the wind and the rain so we sang yeah. that because it was 12th night Very but anyway cool. we're not here to talk about 12th night we're here to talk about medicine and science and we have a very special guest today dr ken thorpe who only lives about 25 miles away from me and he's been to my farm at least one time a few years ago and uh we're here to talk to Ken and I, I thought I would contextualize uh, what we're doing with uh a little bit of my own my own work so my, my own academic work is in early modern religious thought we can't like the fringe religious thought so a lot of the figures I've written about from that period were not only religious thinkers they were also physicians or scientists, or we can call them natural philosophers at the time. And one of them I've written about quite a bit is Thomas Vaughn, who was the twin brother of the metaphysical poet Henry Vaughn. And he, and I was just looking up th things yesterday, anticipating where we're going to, because one of the things Dr. Thorpe talks about and has kind of reintroduced into the, the medical conversation is the idea of ether or the ethers, as they were called. Um, and so I was looking up in uh, John Dunn, who used a lot of alchemical and scientific uh, metaphors in his poetry. And I was looking for rarefied air or ether, which is not, those are not the words he uses. He uses the word quintessence. Yep, right, right. Which is what um, um, many of them did. And that's what Henry Vaughn or uh, Thomas Vaughn uses too. And, and Thomas Vaughn, interestingly, was not only an alchemist, but he was also uh, an Anglican priest. And here, here's what he says in his book, Magia Ad Adamica. This blessed cement and balsam is the spirit of the living God, which some ignorant scribblers <coughs> have called a quintessence. For this very spirit is in the chaos. And to speak plainly, the fire is his throne. For in the fire he is seated, and we have sufficiently told you, as we have sufficiently told you elsewhere, so this is still part of the medical understanding of the world in the early modern period. But actually, while Thomas Vaughan was writing, he was writing against Descartes in the kind of materialist uh, science that was coming up. That's a good fight. Culture. That's a good fight. It, it is a good fight. That's right. Take him down. Um, but and so he and a lot of the other figures I've written about, I always thought of them as traditionalists in a way, because they, they were scientists of the age, but they were rejecting the materialist uh, paradigm that was coming in. And I've always said in my writing on the, on the podcast that I've always wondered what would have happened to science and medicine had not uh, the focus on the purely material happened through the course of the 17th century and afterwards what and as john milbank has called my work you know uh, an alternative modernity and we know there's an alternative modernity out there in science as well in in homeopathy for instance it's an alternative uh modernity it's another stream that's been there but kind of underground and what's been really exciting to me is a mutual friend, friend of ours Therese schroeder sheker who we've also had as a guest on our show started sending me these articles by by Dr. Thorpe and his brother, who's also a physician. And they were reintroducing this idea of ether into the medical conversation. And when I, and then 
I thought, I thought, Mike, we got to talk to this guy. Absolutely. <laughs> Not only is he almost a neighbor, but he's doing something that's supremely important. So welcome to the show, Dr. Ken Thorpe. Thank you very much, Michael. And so, so if you could give us a little bit of your background before we get into your, your groundbreaking discoveries here. Uh, well, by training, I'm an interventional radiologist, <clears throat> and I came out uh, into practice, uh, you know, roughly uh, 40 years ago, the early 80s. Um, I, I was involved in um, catheter work and non-invasive surgical procedures and uh, continued to do that Um Currently, I'm still in practice, although all I do is diagnostic radiology. And, and so that's what it. has been the, the path <laughs> that led you from, from that uh, traditional training or conventional training, you can say, to these insights you've come into in, as far as energetics and uh, et cetera come? Well, surprisingly enough, it came because I was an interventional radiologist. And I, um, I spent half my um, professional life inside other people's arteries. And I started um, making observations that didn't jibe with what I had been taught in medical school. And it was a profoundly um, disturbing or disorienting experience for me to have to put together on my own uh, phenomena that uh, I had seen and experienced and finding, you know, finding out that I had been taught wrong. So what kinds of things were you seeing? Well, this, okay, so um, th th let's just contextualize this back to uh, William Harvey. Um, because, you know, we're sitting here with what some regard as the, the greatest medical discovery in history, 1628, and he publishes his book on the motions of the heart, and for the first time in history, um, describes the circulation of the blood. But what most people don't realize is that at that point in time, he introduced a grave error in the descriptions of the um, contraction and dilation of the heart. And he introduced the metaphor of the heart as a pump um, and specifically describing it as that. And the problem with that is that uh, in this model, it, it projected or propelled blood forward through the uh, heart or through the arteries. But the problem is that uh, once you get to the level of the capillaries, all the pressure head is dissipated and there's no way for the blood to get back to the right side of the heart. And, and it was a glaring error. And um, it, it, it um, was commented on over the years by many, many people. And um, so th there was no way of understanding um, how blood flowed through the veins. And they had all these makeshift theories like, oh, it, it's due to the negative inspiration of the uh, breathing in the chest. Um, when they breathe in, they pull it back, or it's due to the milking action of muscle muscles. But mm -hmm. the fact is, I would be sitting there and I'd be seeing people um, sitting quietly, breathing quietly, laying on a table, and it would be rushing up to the right side of the heart. And I, I, and in younger people, it was as fast as the in the arteries. And I'd be going, "What is going on here?" Mm. And and it was only after a, a period of years that I realized there had to be a suction force, a negative suction force in the heart that was pulling the blood back. And so I started doing research on that. And sure enough, in, in the early 80s, uh, a number of researchers had found a negative uh, pressure within the right ventricle um, in early diastole. Diastole is the dilation portion of the heart cardiac cycle. You got systole, which is contraction, and diastole, which is opening up. And so you have a negative pressure there. And um, it was, oh my God, this just answers everything. This is, this is like an epiphany. 
And um, at that point, I, I, I became addicted to medical history and to reading the medical literature because it was uh, it was a new frontier where uh, you can just you know, you, you go through and it's like, nobody did the synthesis. Nobody went through this. So we, right. we're talking 350 years after a grave error and nobody put it together. Right, right, right. right. <clears throat> well, that's in, 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 as an analogy in, a, in, in Catholic theology, that's what they call the manualist tradition, where you just, you read the book and it tells you what, the, what you're supposed to do in the book. But it, it might not even jibe with the experience you have. And in fact, as, as I'm sure you know, um, just look back to another thing I was looking at yesterday in preparation was uh, in Rudolf Steiner's book, The Origins of Natural Science. He says right here, people began to think that the heart is really a pump that mechanically pumps the blood through the body because they no longer knew that our inner fluids have their own life and therefore move on their own. They never dreamed that the heart is only a sense organ that checks on the circulation of the fluids in its own way. So it's been out there, right? People have been, been saying it, but it, but it's not in the textbooks. <laughs> but it, but it, but it responds directly to a phenomenological observation of what's right in front of you, right? Right. 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 And and what's even what's even more perplexing about it is that for um, nearly fifteen hundred years before Harvey, all physicians. Uh, regarded the the heart you know this is galen in in the uh, second century described the motions of the heart correctly and he correctly. said dilation was the primary the primary movement of the heart and that it um exercised a suction or he used the word attraction force so that blood was literally being pulled back and it was an article of faith or an article of knowledge by all physicians up to the time where harvey in his quintessential um <laughs> era-defining era experiment overturned it and then and, and then we go into this 350 years of dogma and darkness yeah there's a, a couple of things here. one is and i'll ask you a question as i end but i was uh running a little bit behind but uh, uh on my way this morning i knew i was going to look for a section of the classic work Kristen lavenstadter because i remember reading that you know that um you know, the story takes place before Harvey and they just, they're describing a body where the heart's still beating, but they can see it. And they're describing everything, again, opposed to Harvey. They see the suctional force and it's there in literature. And uh, the second one would be, um, and it's a beautiful passage because it's so, again, it's just good writing. And somebody's observing life as opposed to what Michael's saying, the manualist tradition, looking at life through the lens of preconceived notions. But the social history component, uh, before we came on, I mentioned to Dr. Uh, that uh, my hero that everybody knows is Ivan Illich. He mentioned that, um, talk about deleterious effects. Medical Harvey, nemesis. Yeah, yeah, right. It's a great book. And that, you know, based on Harvey's model of the pump, Paris was setting up a sewer system. And then, so what it did, fine, they're going to pump all the shit, we'll use that word, out. But what he can also point out is that we have, um, everybody's interested in like local farming and so forth. He wanted to make the case that you know, prior to Harvey's septic system, which took all this great, you know, now we look at it as compost and things like that, but it, it got it outside the city walls. But prior to that, Paris was more than self-sufficient with vegetables and everything. They were exporting vegetables to the surrounding countryside, you know, and the grains were coming in. And that, you know, it just changed the notion of what cities could do. It changed the notion that we looked at our own processes. And the third one, and I wonder, you know, studying medical history uh, is, the notion again of this myth of origins right everybody the big bang you know and the heart as a pump all of a sudden in history everybody was looking for this first thing that happened you know and i just consider that an adolescent way of looking and science went through its right. adolescent phase where we right. just need the beginning domino so the domino theory in history has also been so deleterious right if southeast yeah. asia goes communist the whole world was go communist so let's kill all of vietnam but it's, it's a theme we haven't brought up in this podcast too much but all these things are when a certain form of the scientific mind, which I call an adolescent version of it, you know, we're just looking for that first domino to fall. We're always looking. And I think Big Bang cosmology for another one is falling apart in our time analogously. 
exactly. Hundred percent. You know, oh, great! I'm so glad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it comes to search for the beast beginnings. We can't handle the mystery of like, you know, that space goes seemingly on forever, and small things get smaller and smaller. Yeah. And um, you know, we're going to see where we end up today. William Blake said this is all resolved in some beautiful notion of the whole cosmos as a human body. You know, I don't know if we're going to end there, but it seems to be more accurate than this whole kind of silly adolescent, you know, that there's a, a beginning of the universe whose diameter was zero, but had infinite mass and it blew up into space that wasn't there before. We're asked to believe such cockamamie stuff because right. of this need to find an origin, the first domino. And then if we find that origin, be yep. damn sure we have power and control, right? Right, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, that, that, that's, um, I think about that a lot and there's, there's two aspects. I mean, obviously in, um, in Buddhism, there's, there's no focus on origins. You know, it's just, uh, you don't need to, to invoke creation. You don't need to invoke this. It's just give an accurate explanation of how things are and you're, you're good enough. The, the second <laughs> point is, uh, I, I, I read uh, in the past handful of months Hannah Arendt's book, The Origins of Tal Totalitarianism, yeah. because we're we're in an epochal time right now, and there there are many people that claim that the pandemic response um, constituted um, a totalitarian, um, um, action. And so, so, so I went back and read and what, what's interesting about it is if you look at her descriptions of what constitutes a totalitarian system, <laughs> modern science meets all the criteria. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a dominating ideological system that demands complete obedience and and you know there's there's very little room for thinking outside the box in modern science as we have seen as we have mm -hmm. seen mm -hmm. um so it's interesting you know same thing i'm looking at uh we're comparing the the, the modern scientific paradigm and its roots in the, the late early modern period and uh also that we can call the manualist tradition it's interesting um you know kind of the the big bang moment for a lot of uh, traditionalist catholics is the council of trent and they think it started <laughs> everything starts there but it, it, they have no idea of how crazy and loose everything was in, in the catholic church prior to that um and that these councils are usually only called <laughs> because because the bishops are losing control you know but it, it, which is the you know this is uh this kind of organic and phenomenological approach to things versus the authoritarian right which is what we've seen in in both of those structures over the last 500 years for sure right yeah the medical structure and the, and the religious structure right. uh, so and that's so, just very briefly michael that ties in when you when you uh, began you talked about how kind of science could have gone a different way. And um, I'm going to say too, like education could have gone a different way. But we always bring in kind of the church or the Catholic church. But you know, we're looking at what's going on even the church right now with all these liturgy wars. But it's, um, it's been so desiccated from medicine and education for so long. Mm -hmm. But you know, I almost want to blame, there was a cultural institution out there that could have had a voice on this stuff at a seminal time. There was an institution that could have had claim to have an understanding of who the human person was, you know, and that, you know, we can't quite get all these things to say, like, you know, which thing did what, but when we're talking about science that had a possibility of not taking this wrong turn, um, it's because the church didn't put out its best there. You know, our friend Guido, who's going to come up here, just said the church hasn't produced a towering intellectual um, in 200 years or more. You know, that could have been at the right time to see the Harvey thing come and say, oh my gosh, this is a crazy way of thinking. This is not the best, you know. Well, Guido, you know, and as Guido says in his book that's coming out pretty soon, part of the big part of the problem is how how uh, church leadership was co-opted by by the empire, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So, you know, so looking forward to that book. Guido, get it out, man. <laughs> so uh Speaking of Guido Preparata, um, Guido is the son of the late Giuliano Preparata, who uh, was a physicist and pretty much a maverick. 
and he, he his work overlaps Ken's a little bit because a lot I think yeah a lot and in fact and I just in fact I guess got a phone call from Teresa a couple of days ago and she says is Juliana a prep runner related to Guido so again it's his dad oh, Ken will love this guy um and uh so what hit what one of the things Giuliano Preparato was doing, his, he was working on the memory of water. And this was, was in the 60s or 70s? Probably the 70s, huh, Mike? I think so, yep. Probably the 70s. So so I I think and this is definitely something that touches on Ken's work. So I, I wonder if you could talk about water a little bit then, Ken. Well, <clears throat> yes. And and let's, um, let's, right now just go back to the advances that have been made in the last two decades. I, I don't know if you're aware of the work of um, Gerald Pollack, The Fourth Phase of Water. Mm -hmm. Remarkable book um, because um, water isn't what we thought it is. And it's, it's you know, there's that book by the um, philosopher uh, Heisak Chang, is water H2O? And it, he makes the argument that no, it's more than that. And it's it's really an element unto itself. And that's basically what, what um, uh, Pollock shows. And, 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 and what he found in his research was that water, we, we've been conditioned to think of it as, as ice, liquid, and steam or vapor, but it actually has a fourth phase, a structural phase. And, and that um, water in natural systems and in the human body, by the way, um, and it, water is the conveyor of energy in the human body. And what happens is that in the liquid state, water has two distinct phases. What, um, uh, <clears throat> what Pollock calls exclusion zone or EZ water and um, bulk water. And th these are like two phases of water with very distinct um, properties. This uh, exclusion zone water undergoes structuration and forms like nanocrystals, you know, um, hexagonal or octagonal um, crystalloid structures that um, organize around, um, mainly around hydrophilic surfaces, like the edges of cells, the, you know, uh, the edges of molecules that have, that have um, hydro, you know, a charge to them. And this exclusion zone layer of water then kicks out solutes, it, it kicks out particles. And so it, it, it has a higher density, it has an alkaline, um, uh, um, it's, it's alkaline rather than acidic, and the, the adjacent um, um, bulk water is acidic and thinner, and the, uh, what Pollock notes is that once these two um, uh, phases of water form, there's a, a voltage potential between them, a charge potential, and there's a net flow of, of energy from the EZ water. So it's, it's actually a resonant structure. It resonates and it, 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 it has a relationship, believe it or not, with the ether. And right. it's literally pulling in energy, which um, is then used in systems. And, and, and um, for instance, this, this is very interesting because um, Pollock is into phenomenology and his book, The Fourth Phase of Water, is, it's an incredible work. It's incredible. And he just goes through the natural world and says, why didn't we notice this before? And one of the fascinating examples to me is, okay, you've been on a boat before, and you know you're dry, you're you're moving along, and you look behind the boat, and it's got a wake, and you often see the dis, dis, disturbance that the boat made, and it'll sometimes be there for twenty minutes, right? You ever notice that? Mm -hmm. What's happening there? <clears throat> um, what, what Pollock says is that um, the easy water, the 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 um, structured water tends to accumulate at the top 
of the uh, water collection because by the way, it's sensitive to light. And so it, it sits up there. And when you when you go through on a boat, you're in a, you know, you're violating that stability and um, it takes, it takes a period of time to reform. Now, who has ever thought of something mm -hmm. like that? Right, and yet right. it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, and my, my partner in Grand Rapids and I, we've done a lot of research on, on water. And um, we've, you, you can introduce this, this um, uh, clear uh, um, easy water by, by magnetizing the water, by light. And so, so water is a, an energetic medium. It carries energy and, and it's in, in the body, for instance, um, water, um, uh, surrounds all bioactive molecules like proteins. And that's how proteins execute their function. And it's how they take on their three-dimensional structure. Yeah. And another is probably, uh, speaking of the alternative modernity, another figure I would have to mention here is Victor Schauberger, right? Who, oh, yeah. the water wizard, he was of Bavaria. Do you know about him, Mike? Yeah, of, of course, you know, those that yeah, even that he was, uh, people can find on YouTube is so wild and how he was abducted. Yeah, and he was just a forester and he just came up to this stuff by observing water. He's right. the he's the Nikola Tesla of water, right? He just, saw what, he just saw what water was, you know. And he, and he also in, in, invented a spaceship. Right. Yeah, using suctional force, you know, and, yeah. uh, and <laughs> a, a vacuum, you know, when water spirals down, he just saw that power. I mean, I'm sure DARPA has him. <laughs> and 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 Dr. Kent, the uh, you know this we mentioned Guido, his dad. You know, the, to kind of give a little context to where I see your work overlapping, you know, his dad he would say was essentially canceled. You know, because he challenged Richard Feynman's. There's a poem you could look up uh, if you Google like James Gleick, the science writer who wrote on chaos. Right. And right. There's this famous poem about the young fiery guy who wants to take on you know the god Richard Feynman, and and. Uh, Giuliano Preparato is a fiery guy. And so there's a famous poem that's read at a lot of physics conferences about when Giuliano Preparata stood up to challenge Feynman. The end result, though, is that he was essentially canceled, right? You know, he's, he maintained his chair at Princeton, but his papers. But um, Guido, his son, kind of has that same fiery spirit. I don't think the temper. But, you know, and I'm forgetting the third part of it. But when we're talking about, like, why hasn't there been research into the memory of water? And the main scientist years ago is uh, Benvenista, I believe. Just like for cold fusion, it was um, you know Fleischmann right. and Pons, but right. it's to say that right now cold fusion. If anybody's been paying attention the last month, it's back into the news cycle. Yep. yep. And it's simply because you know we might with this crazy war with Russia and Ukraine. He just wanted to say like the empire, you know, if they ever let medical stuff be healed through water and not all with these interventions that cost so much and make so much money and right. energy. You know, they're not going to give up their profit potentials of energy through cold fusion. You know, Bill Gates has millions and millions and millions of dollars invested in cold fusion now. But only a couple of months ago, if you mentioned the name Giuliano Preparata in cold fusion, they would have called you, you're a lunatic, you're a lunatic. They're still calling people who are researching the memory of water or water memory, you know, lunatics. French uh, scientists. Yeah, but we just got to realize, let's not make it pure a one-to-one -one correspondence, but certainly when we're thinking of this, we have to think of, you know, the loss of profit. You know, why certain scientists are cast out of the field is because if we began to see the potential of water for healing, and if we began to take the insights of all these people we've mentioned, including Schauberger, think of the gazillions of dollars that are in jeopardy from that. Can you speak to that a little bit, Kim? Well, let me just, yes, but let, let, let's just look at this path not taken theme because um, about, uh, four years ago, <clears throat> before the pandemic, a remarkable book came out from Russia by two Russian scientists. It's called The Emerging Science of Water. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the first author, I think his name is Valentin Voikov, and the other guy's name is Karatkov. And um, this is, uh, no, this had to be, uh, yeah, it was, it was um, maybe 2018. And <clears throat> The, they were huge on Pollock and, you know, were saying, oh, this is revolutionary work. This is revolutionary work. But then they go over and they start saying, but, but Russian scientists had been uh, talking about the same thing for decades. And they were talking about how, for instance, in, in 
water or in in Russia they they use magnetized water uh, to you know for crops they they use they, they they've always believed in it they drink it they um, and and they they um, so they talk about this important idea of of water as an energetic medium and it was when I read that it was the first realization I had that um, homeopathy there that there was something behind it um, and and they, they actually solve the riddle of homeopathy because in the act of succussing, succussing your, your um, uh, homeopathic remedies, you're using water and you're, you're building up uh, an energy a resonance structure within the water. And um, the resonance structure is what they call the memory of water. For and the memory, right. And, and for instance, I, I don't know if you know about this, but you know, the, the, the homeopaths can be as dogmatic as any scientist. And oh, sure. um, the, the homeopathic um, tradition split in the mid to late, I think mid 19th century and went off into two different paths. The one path was the high dilutionalists and the second path was the low dilutionalists. And Hahnemann, the more he did, the more he realized that you, that you really didn't need the medicine that you were putting into it and, and that the more, the more you diluted it and the more you succussed, um, the more energy that it have, and they uh -huh. they, they started more, going right? up and saying, just use what you know, just use the uh, the high dilution, and they were doing dilutional therapies of you know a, a thousand or more fold dilution, and 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 remember, you know, the the after about the seventh or eighth the eighth dilution, there's no physical substance left in the preparation. Mm -hmm. Let's stay with this for a little bit because well, I think the first time Guido mentioned well, this. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, in that was that alchemical principle, right? That yeah. the more you reduce the physicality of a thing, a thing, the more powerful the spirit becomes, right? Wow. So kind of the same same analogy. That's what they. That's what was doing. And I remember teaching as a Walter teacher how weird water is. Hmm. It's just. People don't think about it because it's so common, but it's the weirdest thing. I mean, you know, how many substances out there do you know that expand when they get colder? Right. Uh -huh. Just water, you know? So it's bizarre. It's, a, it's the weirdest thing. And it's, you know, it's the source of life. And it's the most misunderstood or not, not even taken for granted. Talk about the philosopher's stone, right? Yeah, it's right. the thing that we ignore and it's all over the place. Yeah, and maybe we've been led to not unlock its secrets on purpose. I, I, I'm, of course, I'm a conspiracy theorist. You know, in one sense, I think that's true. You know, and uh, this, uh, I guess two things. One is, um, well, uh, this Ivan Illich, you know, what, I, I think it's his least read book. You've read, you mentioned Medical Nemesis, Ken, but he also has a book called H2O and the Waters of Forgetfulness. Now, I hadn't thought of so much that... Uh, He's talking symbolically. It was about a, a lake. He went to a public meeting because an inner city lake was going to be dug in the city of Dallas. And people wanted to, um, you know, there were pro the pros and cons. And for some reason, he was invited to speak. And the water was going to be pumped in. And he, and he just said, like, hey, do whatever you want to do. Like, you do you, bros. But he, he said, like, this, this stuff that comes from a fountain, you know, or from a garden hose, you know, how does, how does this stuff, H2O, connect with the waters of, you know, um, in Greek mythology. And he wondered if H2O could be valid baptismal matter. Isn't that fascinating? You know, this, mm -hmm. this, you know, when you're saying H2O, this kind of way we've seen it, if we've reduced what Michael so excellently said, I didn't know Steiner would just say like water is weird, but that's the greatest lesson that Waldorf education could teach. But once we've reduced water to H2O and we see water that way, then can it affect what the Christians and the Catholics believe about baptism? But it's a little, it's a little track that captures on this whole history um, that is beautiful. And when you mentioned, I think when we talked, we've mentioned Preparata again, I hadn't thought of the second part of the title of that book, you know, The Waters of Forgetfulness, which is the, you know, th that same theme of memory, memory and water, memory and water. Well, you know, it's else is interesting because if you, if you go back and look at the, 
19th century um, development of um, theories of electromagnetism and, you know, the work of Faraday and physicists like him, like Heaviside and all those. Um, so we have three basic forms of energy, um, all of which come out of ether and all of which have an intimate relationship with ether. And um, so we have magnetism, which is the only the only energy form that possesses three dimensionality. So it literally right. gives us the space that we reside in. Then, then we have um, what, what um, Faraday coined the dielectric field. And the, the dielectric field is um, this, it's, it's in substance and it's the primary energy form that causes um, things to come together. And when you're, when it's exposed to a an electrical field, it breaks apart, uh, separates into positive and negative. And then the third form is radiant energy, um, light and electricity. And what's interesting about water is that it has an intimate relationship. It's the only substance like this. It has an intimate relationship with all three energy forms mm. water has the highest or one of the highest dielectric constants of of any substance there are other substances higher but it's it's way high it holds magnetism very powerfully um, and it conducts dc currents so um it's it's unique i mean you know everything else is divided into insulators or uh, conductors or this but water's the real deal it, it, it has a real relationship with all the energy forms we should have t-shirts made that say water is the real deal <laughs> that's right water is the water the real deal <laughs> so um so dielectricity or dielectric help help me again with that i i read some of your articles and i just wondered if it was like um i admit to struggling with that because it's new to me like it was like ambient energy but electricity I saw is that stuff that goes through wires or something. But if you can give that to me one more time and I might be echoing a question our listeners have. Just the dielectric? Yeah. That okay, was well, let me, let's give it in, let's give it in real <clears throat> experimental terms because back in the 1890s, um, physicists were, were struggling with this. Um, it, it, the, the idea that was uh, introduced by these flowing currents and what effects they had. And um, Savante Arrhenius, the Swedish physicist who I think won a Nobel Prize somewhere around the turn of the century, he was the first one to describe this. And, and you know, as soon as I tell you this, you'll understand yeah. Because these experiments were done um, as early as the you know early decades of the 19th century, where you you got a water bath and you run a DC current through it, and so you have you've got a cathode and an anode, and the um, cathode is the point at which the the current enters and then at the other end supposedly and this is a okay. big suppose okay the, the but supposedly the anode at the other end is where the current exits and what happens between these two um electrodes is that you get um around the cathode this expansionary force um that that um if you're in a test tube, the water actually expands um, in volume, whereas on the other side, it's contractional, and it you get a buildup of acids and particles and you know crap like that, and um, so that there's two different behaviors, and and so he introduced this notion of of these electrolytes as following, you know, the, the, to one pole or another. And that's how all these terms came about. So for instance, if you put salt into a water solution and run a DC current through it, um, you're going to get, you're going to get, you know, one set of ones um, like the sodium is going to want to gravitate towards the negative and the chloride is going to go the other way. And that's how it sort of happens. They separate out. So um, Faraday had seen these kind of behaviors. And I think he had a colleague named Waywell 
um, and he was asking him, well, what, what are we going to call this? And they came up with this term dielectric just because it created oppositional species. And, okay. and believe it or not, we see this in the cell. The cell is like a little, um, it's a little dielectric battery. And, and um, so, yeah, it's, it's, that's like a basic form. And, and if you read the work of, of Wheeler, um, he he claims that the dielectric field, and I, I think he I, I think he's right. The dielectric field is the primary energy form, this flowing current that causes substances to attract and congeal. You know the Feynman's like like like, yeah. um, and so it causes formation. And then in certain in certain uh, substances like ferromagnetic material. Um, when the dielectric field acts, it causes the nuclei to precess and um, align and throw off the magnetic field externally, creating a magnet. So you got magnetism as a secondary field. And then, um, you know, radiant energy, like from the sun and stars, is, is a third form. Fascinating. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Yep. So, so, so I want to connect this next to... Uh, another point that you, you that I find fascinating in your work, but it, and it's also um, you know the reason I'm interested in because you know my my interest in early modern poetry is uh, it's rife with this stuff with references, for instance, in uh, Andrew Marvell's "To His Coy Mistress," one of the most popular poems in in freshman English courses in college, is uh, this reference to the vegetable soul, and he says. I, I probably do it from memory, but my vegetable love should grow vaster than empires and more slow. And then John Donne talks about his different souls, right? And they're, what, what they're talking, this is the very medieval understanding of Aristotelian, right? That um, that we that we participate in the, or the creation around us and vice versa in a kind of reciprocal relationship and how we have a vegetative soul that makes us grow we have an animal soul which gives us movement and desire and we have the rational soul which much later Rudolf Steiner changed into physical body etheric body astral body and ego right and and so forth um but in that <clears throat> medieval and early modern literature and even in classical literature <clears throat> there's this other thing that's not those four. It's it's not earth, air, fire, and water. There's this that we talked about earlier, the quintessence or this other thing, which in some some uh, alchemical and other kinds of medical tracts they call ether, and it's very much connected to Mike. We've talked about it before. Uh, we could call it the anima mundi or the soul of the world, right? Or Sophia, right? So I wonder if you could talk about how ether comes into your work and, and why that's important for us, I mean, for today. Hmm. Well, well um, okay, you you use the term soul. And by the way, I'm a, I'm a huge, uh, I, I just love Aristotle. And I, I that's in complete agreement with everything that Aristotle says. And, and yeah. by the way, in, in the, in, embryogenesis and in the human body you can see all three of these souls at play they are very real phenomena and you know aristotle's synthetic um descriptions of of life uh, are are basically based on the premise that everything reverts to singularity so you you have to have something out of which things come and that was his notion of of ether because you know you have <clears throat> you have empedocles describing the, the the four roots earth water air fire and and these two primal forces that he called love which is attraction and strife which is dispersion and um back in those days uh, you know fifth century bc they they took these terms love and strife to actually represent forces and you know aristotle um starts uh, thinking on this and when he's doing his his um you know um material causes um, efficient causes formal causes final causes you know he's trying to make everything reduced to singularity 
and and ether was the necessary singularity out of which all the other major energy forms arose and he he coined the term ether which which literally means always running mm. and and um the the so so that ether became an accepted um explanatory uh, vehicle the same way um soul or or more importantly spirit spirit yeah. is like the singularity of all these other uh, forces and so you have you have ether and it it there were five medical sects in Rome and at least two of them used the ether concept and um, it, it got caught changed to quintessent and then uh, it kind of comes and goes um, it was used by the Arabs um, but the real first modern proponent of this um, ether concept in medicine was of course Paracelsus and his quintessence. So you needed this. You needed this fifth essence, and and it, whenever you hear people talking about the ether, it automatically tells you where their conceptual framework is coming from, because we're talking about a unitary functional field, um, and and virtually all these people that um, embraced it, they saw life and saw use the term creation, whatever that is, the natural world as, as a, a hierarchy, a, a ladder, a great chain of being. And the, 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 the whole concept was vertical. Everything was vertical, up and down. And the top, the most general force was the most important causally. And that became ether that, you, you, you know, so mm -hmm. you're, you, that's the Aristotelian great chain of being, right? Right, absolutely. It's first, first cause, primal cause, right? Right. So now, so how did you come back to this in your work? I mean, you wrote these articles with your brother and seen you in interviews talking about it. And I think it's super important. And I think it's super important for the future of medicine in particular. Um, how did you come to this? And what, what are the applications of it? Um, well, okay, so I'm I'm fortunate. Um, I'm I'm very fortunate um, to have been in the situation that I'm in. I've I've been I've studied. I've been act, uh, intellectually curious. But I, I I ran across about ten or twelve years ago a phenomenally brilliant character in um, living in Grand Rapids. We crossed paths. He's um, an engineer with. Um, at least four advanced degrees. His name is Paul Walker. And um, Paul is uh, the classic experimenter, alchemical experimenter. He uh, does all his work in his own laboratory at home. And um, we began talking and communicating and realized that we had this shared interest in, in um, energy and uh, this so so Paul and I have carried on a, a, a maybe a eight ten year conversation about energy, and um, he's been working on a, a, a believe it or not a, a, a crystal battery a resonating crystal device which is very close to being complete, um, uh, out of water believe it or not uh, using water to create a resonance field, and. Um, he and I began uh, working on preparations that ma heavily magnetized water, which we tested on people and just looking at, you know, the, the medical uses of energy or of, uh, well, of energy in the, in water and stuff like that. So as our relationship progressed, he, he, uh, uh, big, you know, kept on talking about, uh, he he calls it the ethera, and um, I, I, at one point, you know, I had heard it before, and I I, I stopped him and I said, um, I, I said, you keep using this, but tell me what you think this is. And he goes, oh, he goes, it's a universal substance. It's he goes, nobody in science knows about it. They 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 poo poo it, but he goes. Um, you, you know, you got all this stuff going on with dark matter and dark energy. And he goes, he goes, they, they don't know what it is because they threw out ether a hundred years ago. And the truth is, 
you have to have ether to explain these things. And I, I got interested in that. Um, and I, I, I started doing a research on ether and I came up, now you, you'll be interested in this. I, I, I found a 45 page uh, brilliant um, piece uh, entitled um, um, Aristotle's Ether and Contemporary Science. And it's by a, a, a Catholic philosopher, theologian of all people. Um, and it was published in the Thomas, you know, the Thomas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, in something like 2004. The guy's name is Christopher A. Decane, D E C A E N. It is remarkable. I mean, I, I've read this four or five times because he basically goes through the entire history of ether and um, starts with Aristotle. And then he shows um, how, how wrong science went when they threw out ether based on the Michelson-Morley experiment. Wow. And all Have you been that. in touch with this person? Pardon me? Have you been in touch with Christopher? You know, I, no, I, I, I sent, after I read him, I, I sent him an email and just congratulated him on oh, his work, nice. but I've, I've never communicated yeah. with him. Okay. Um, he is, um, his work is singular. It's so towering, toweringly good. And he, he's, a, 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 of course, an apologist for uh, Thomas Aquinas. Um, and he, he In the Thomas he is. That, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry? Now, if he's in the Thomas, that's what that's what they do over there, right? Well, I mean, he's he uh -huh. he, he shows uh -huh. Saint Thomas's um, contribution to the field, and it's not insignificant, mm -hmm. if for no other reason that he kept that concept alive, yeah. right? In fact, like one Steiner in that same lecture was was mentions the same thing, actually. Well, I mean, it's it's, <clears throat> it's a big deal, okay? Because I mean, here you want you want to, what what does a new science look like? Well, you can't have a new science without um, energy and without the concept of ether, and all of a sudden you're not in dogmatic molecular material science. You are back to what the theologians were writing about. You're, you're, you're talking about <clears throat> very significant. Everybody gets into the mix on this one, right? I just Googled yeah. the guy. And that's, yeah. and a lot of Christmas college and things. So. When, you yes, know, I'm when, sorry, what? what did I just you Googled his name and he's taught at Christendom College where there's about like 200 students. Now he's at St. Thomas Aquinas College. And yeah, interesting. But, I just heard his name. I had an no. instant attraction to this guy uh, because I like his style of writing. And yeah, um, that's quite often the. Like I was going to say is, uh, so it, you mentioned how this touches on theology, and this is where, you know, what I've been drawing on, what I call Sophia, or the Anima Mundi, the soul of the world, right? Right, and right. Which is, um, with Louis Dupre, you know him, right? Yeah. Mike? Now, he, he writes, you know, that's like this one concept that just, that the theologians <laughs> keep trying to kick out, but it keeps coming back, you know? And I think the scientists, too, keep trying to kick it out. And and it keeps coming back. And and is this? And I don't know his work as well as I should. But is this what Tesla was was drawing on? Oh, of this, course. This universal yeah. source of energy, it, right? Yeah. This, of course, of course. And and um, there there were a, a bunch of um, not a bunch, but um, you know, t by the end of the nineteenth century, you had a, a um, coterie of of um phys experimental physicists that were heavy into the ether maxwell you know and heavy side and uh charles steinmetz i mean this yeah. this was very real and then you do this stupid um flawed um michelson morley uh, experiment that that couldn't find it um, and and why would it? It was based on a stupid su supposition that it was an elastic-like material. Garbage so, in, garbage out, right? You know. Right, and then and then you know, so they published that, and then that that formed the basis of of Einstein's relativity. The the fact that ether had been thrown out, and he pronounces it dead, and then and then ten years later he comes back and says, well. Uh, I, I maybe maybe we do need it, and, <laughs> you know. Of course, 
he, he didn't come out strong enough. He's going, well, we could think about it in this way, but, mm -hmm. but it was like too late. The horse was out of the barn, right? Yeah. Yeah. In your writings, uh, can you, and I wonder only, you know, I'm looking for visuals for myself and for like other people, you know, some of this, it's not so heady, but like, you know, we, um, you say the heart, you know, does the heart pump the blood or does the blood pump the heart, you know, and things like that. But the other one would be you point an image of a light bulb, right? You know, and the filaments there. We're trained <laughs> to think, yeah, we're trained to think that there's some energy that comes up and creates the light. And what you're saying is that it's drawing in the ambient you know, it's drawing from, it's creating a, something that's drawing in the ambient. Is that right? You know, absolutely. In fact, there's, you know, we just need um, to reverse you know the Paul, Paul and I have talked about this. There, the, 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 technically speaking, properly speaking, current doesn't flow through a light bulb filament. Right. It's, it, that's, that's entirely wrong. And, and what really happens, and by the way, what it's the same thing. Let's, let's go to a slightly different example. I, I bring this up all the time. Is it true that light uh, travels from the sun to the earth? Um, does light travel from the sun to the earth? Does light or does electricity travel through a filament? Mm -hmm. And and of course everybody goes well. Of course it does. Oh well, if it if that's the case, then why is it that the solar system doesn't entirely light up like a big gymnasium? <laughs> and and right. why isn't the whole thing lit up? And the fact is, light doesn't travel. Light is an inductive phenomenon, and what ha what travels are the e, um, electromagnetic frequencies. They th travel through the dark space, but they don't, they don't have anything to contact and interact with in the, the darkest recesses of space. And if you look, the only bodies that display these, um, these light properties are like the earth and, and these, the EMF comes and hits the atmosphere of the earth and directly generates light just like um the light bulb when it when it gets you know it, it this happens it it interacts with the ether and and it's as an induction phenomenon you get light thrown out locally from a point source yeah right yeah right 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 no i just think again it's like what i called it you know the myth of origins we're always looking at things going one way where right, like, right. You know, you know, I, when I'm counseling students, you know, my background's there. It's it's similar to me to say, you know, uh, when you're happy, you smile. But when it's, when you smile, it makes you happy, right? There's always kind of a both and. And we can right. see these things everywhere. But there's something about, you know, there's something about this lobotomy we've all had that always wants to see things, you know, just going one way. And um, you know, it's just a shortcoming. We're always looking for that one-way thing. And so we're missing half the world in almost everything we look at. Exactly. Well, it's very interesting that if you read Plotinus's work, um, he's, you know, he's kind of regarded as the philosopher of the unconscious. And he's, yeah. um, he was, you know, uh, uh, had strong influence on the early Christian um, uh, Certainly St. Augustine was a, just a baby. And, and, and Oregon and, and yeah. you know, so 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 the the um he claims you know in his again his he has a three tier hierarchy of causation you start at the one you go to the uh, ip the intellectual principle then you go to the all soul um but in his um, um phenomenology of the human body he he actually tells us how reason thinks and he, he's not a big fan of reason and logic and the the reason for that is this um intellective or reasoning soul attaches itself to sensory phenomena and sensory phenomena can't be used to make broad generalizations about the nature of being and existence and 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 in fact this directionality of time that that we we get through 
um, our senses, you know, we got day, night, we've got years, we've got, you know, it's a one-way projective um, force, but that's what only what our senses tell us. Mm -hmm. And we reason on our sense material and come up with these strange ideas when in fact, um, er earlier civilizations, again, thought entirely vertically and up and down because that's the true causal nexus. Right, right, right. Right? Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, thinking <clears throat> about like young people who might be listening too, uh, Michael mentioned Nikola Tesla. And so you have two people like Stephen Hawking and Nikola Tesla. But like, and so we, we have the paragon of science as uh, like Stephen Hawking, but I wanna say, and I don't know 150th as much as you do, Ken, but to me, like Nick, uh, Stephen Hawking, for example, not to disrespect him, he was a mathematician, right? So you come up with one side of the equation, he's missing something over here. So he posits something like dark matter or black holes, where what Nikola Tesla was doing is bringing stuff. And actually with his work with like plasma and so forth, right. he was the new scientist. It was reproducible at a smaller scale, right? right? He could do things in a laboratory. So these people that are on the outside, Tesla, uh, Victor Schauberger in a different way, but they're the true scientists, you know, they're not just like substituting math for the notion of science, that these are the people we need to follow. No, they're not consulting the manual. What's right. that? They're not consulting the manual. Right, right, they're actually right. doing science. Yeah, doing right. science. Yep, yeah, that's a that's a much better way of saying it. Which is the same, you know, and I'm so glad to talk to Ken today, because now I have more justifications for cloud busting and stirring up preparations in a, in a bucket. <laughs> So yeah, like, preparations are essentially like the information right here, my man. Water, yeah. right? Preparations are like the well, that's it. I mean, that's the, the, the you know the, the biodynamic preparations which you stir in in a bucket in in vortexes and going both ways for an hour, enlivening water, right? Absolutely, you know, absolutely. So, and it works. That's the other thing is when I started doing this stuff, you know, I'm no scientist, but I. My my whole approach to it, even when I built the cloud buster, I was like, well, I'm just going to see if it works, right? If it works, I'll do it. If it doesn't work, I'll stop doing it. My wife was like, why are you wasting your time with that cloud buster? I said, I just want to see if it works. I got, I have the pipe and I have stuff. Well, I'll see if it works. <laughs> and then it worked. And now she's like, Michael, we need rain. But, okay. So uh, she, she's a true believer now. But but at first she was highly skeptical. But if you see something work. You know, you you repeat a, a scientific uh, or some kind of uh, experiment. You repeat it, and you get the same results or similar results. You got to eventually think, well, there's something to this. Yeah, you, you know, this is the the beautiful tradition of uh, experimentation, and um, it has a a place. It's had a place throughout all of history, but it's been taken over by. Um, the scientists that you know have you know, only they can do it but the true, the the true experimentation was done locally by you know the faradays and the you know the the teslas and the, the, that's the future and i mean uh, you know in this gargantuan colossal behemoth that we're living in you know the science and capitalism and all this there were people that thought differently and i i i don't know that you can ever fight this except to vote with your feet and and walk yeah. back to the local <laughs> level in your own your own experience and your own your own local community and begin to reinvent this stuff on your own right wow no well, that's, that's what, a, that's that's what was saying you mentioned uh medical nemesis earlier I have my students in one of my courses read the, the original article, Medical ne Nemesis, which was published in the British Medical Journal, by written by a guy who was not a scientist or, or a physician. And when he died, they republished it. And they had an entire issue devoted to him. And I asked the students, why do you think the British Medical Journal would publish an article by a guy who's not a scientist, not a physician, and it's highly critical of the professionalization of medicine and science. And well, you know, they think about it. And I then I ask the second part of the question: Do you think we'd be published today? Or like and they all say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. And I think that's an that's important. Mm -hmm. um, what Ken's saying, and that's what Illich was saying in his through his whole career about in every domain he was criticizing that whether it's an education in medicine 
in the in the church that the professional managerial class has kind of been the the death of of innovation more priestly than the priesthood the the most important um contributor uh, i believe in in a you know um a, a pluralistic um society is the conscious a conscientious objector okay and you you can't underestimate their role and and of course we don't have that function in our um uh, monolithic culture anymore but i i will say and not to lionize bmj the british medical journal as it's now called but they they do have that moderate <clears throat> function that um, conscientious objector status and i i was very pleased um if you look at what happened during the pandemic and i don't want to go into it now but it was all orchestrated okay oh, none of this had to happen and there was fraud and deceit at all levels from the very beginning um and 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 by the way my brother and i um we have recently published a paper we went through and did a an analysis of 108 countries and we we looked at um, you know, social containment measures, mortality rates um, from, you know, COVID vaccination rates, blah, 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 blah. We had like maybe 20 different parameters. And um, the bottom line is there wasn't a single outcome. The, there was no outcome based on the social containment measures. There was no outcome on the vaccines. And in fact, countries that uh, were had higher per capita income and higher vaccination rates had a slightly higher mortality rates. Mm. So this this was a, a, a production put on by the medical industrial complex. And to their credit, they, they, they haven't gone that far in the um, in the process, but they were the first to start publishing critical um, editorials on the handling of the pandemic. And in November of 21, they published that that really powerful, important uh, whistleblower piece mm -hmm. um, that the, the person that um, had been helping conduct research inside of Pfizer and who um, was fired because she kept on complaining about um, fudging of data and stuff, and she took she took all the um, you know all, all these documents and turned it over to the um, public, and and so you know this it is BMJ does this kind of stuff, and they've had that history, and and you have to applaud them for it. Yeah, yeah, you do, you do. Good. So it's probably a good place for us to wrap it up, and I'll. You have other things to do. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to invite you on again, Ken, because uh, in addition to your 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 intelligence, your insights, you know, I, I you've got the right spirit. <laughs> Thank you very much. The right yeah, like this conscientious. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, it was my honor. I really enjoyed it. Great. Well, thanks everybody for uh, you know thanks, Ken, and uh, thanks for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. We'll see everybody. Uh, next week.